Welcome to Life Extension. Life Extension is my series where I interview the scientists and pioneers of longevity. We're investigating the new frontiers of longevity for people and planet. I'm so excited to have Joe Beth Lacroix. He's the founder of Retrobio, a very high profile I've heard on longevity. And he's an old school startup guy who actually did one of the great smartphone companies of the 2000s, back when I myself was building one of those early smartphone companies. For me, it was Peak, simple smartphone. But you'll hear from Joe what he was working on and how that took him through his journey working on mice, automation, and now to what I think you could call big data for discovering life extension technologies and compounds. Joe, thank you for being on uh, this series with me. I've been speaking to a bunch of people from the field, broadly construed, and I guess trying to go one layer deeper than some of the stuff about cold plunges or just, you know, exercising more or whatever, and just figure out what the sci-fi might be, where it'll come from, and how real it could be. And it's been really quite interesting to speak to folks that have built big operations. And I guess you're on the front end of it right now with Retrobio. I'm interested to learn more about that, but, you know, how you got to it and just... Um, how you're going to prosecute this thing. It seems like every five or 10 years for the last 30 years, there's been a period of intense interest around longevity. A bunch of billionaires put in some money and big projects get underway. And I have noticed that, but I also feel that this time it's different. So how have you come to this moment? I think it, it of course, feels different to me because I'm more involved than I have been in previous times. I think there are also real differences that are happening like structurally and also just in, you know, in terms of where biology is. And I think a lot of things are coming together at the same time that is going to make this one really exciting. So I guess just backing up to me personally, I, I got pretty interested in longevity biotech right around, like right after the liquidity event from my first startup, which was OQO, making these tiny PCs, basically, that are in your pocket that ran Microsoft Windows. You know that we share that in common, Joe. I also, like some, I guess, 15 years ago, started one of the early smartphone companies called Peak. We were this $50 simple device, cloud-connected, email, Facebook, Twitter, messaging, whatever. And OQO was one of the companies I quite admired. There's also, like, Joe Britton, those guys were, were working on their hip-top thing, and you all were kind of, I guess, kind of sort of reacting to wanting to make a hipper version of the BlackBerry, which was kind of boring and corporate at that time. Yeah, I think it, it was a time when it was clear that phones were getting smarter and bigger-ish and PCs were getting smaller and more mobile. It wasn't clear to me then which one was going to own this complex mobile space. You know, is the PC going to get smaller and smaller? Obviously, the phone won. And my project got purchased by Google, OQO, which is primarily a phone maker. So it was a cool project because you can entrain adventurous tech minds by saying, we're going to build the smallest X in the world. Like you have a superlative like that in there. A lot of people want to join. And that makes it exciting. And it's like a race or something. You know, like you want to win the World Cup. It's like an arbitrary goal. Well, but ambitious and very tangible, right? Absolutely. It's, a, it's more tangible than we won this year's sports competition x but it's also ephemeral and what i found afterward specifically a time like sitting on the beach after that liquidity event going huh this is great this is good i'm just gonna chill now forever was looking back on it was it did it do any good and it was like i had the same kind of cynicism about it that i would i think that if we it was like we gathered everybody together and we won a particular competition and then it's over and then a year two years later it's forgotten I was fast forwarding and like two years from now, most of those are going to be in the landfill because Moore's law continuously crushes and destroys all computing technology. It has to keep outrunning that constantly moving bar of function. What did I do? Like I, I created a bunch of things that delighted a few sort of wealthy salespeople and various other kind of special niche application things with the smallest thing, but transiently, not as like a fundamental enabler of like of a deep human need. And so then I started looking for what is the human need and why human and like, what are the needs? Damn, what am I doing and why? I know the feeling. That's where I was at that point. I know the feeling. I mean, the power of technology, but where to apply it maybe is the question you were asking around that time. 
And I don't know, I mean, did that take you to biology? You didn't come from that kind of background. I mean, I myself was sort of an academic and then I like left the field and that's, you know, then I was in like mobile phones and smartphones and stuff. At some point I came all the way circling back and thought, well, I should probably use the stuff that I've, I've learned to have some kind of impact. I guess that's kind of where I am now. Biology seemed like the area. That's the path you were on. In grade school, I got really into electronics. I started supporting myself doing that in high school. So I think doing a bigger project like that, like a you know kind of globally famous venture funded project, it made sense to some degree for me to do it in something that was a really comfortable idiom. But one of the things that really drove me early on was since I grew up in the Pacific Northwest rainforest, like those trees, those forests, they're incredible. Like in Oregon, there was something deep in my soul that just really cared about them. And I saw them, you know, they're like thousands of years old and they're just getting cut down to make toilet paper out of. And that oh, it just bothered me, you know? So like a big chunk of me was like, we have to save the earth. I got the first degree from Harvard, environmental geoscience. I got pretty deep into earth stuff, earth science. I really like fast forwarding things, like imagining where is this going to go and how big could it get? What's the max? There's a phrase that we use here at Retro, maxing. Just think about all kinds of things. Like, What if you just start maxing that? And all of the roads from environmentalism if you max them, it are uh, they basically point to like the perfect environmentalism is the extinction of all humans in every direction. Like, well, how do we stop this particular ecosystem from getting destroyed? We'll get the people out of there. Like the people are like, by definition, they're kind of destroyers of nature. Kevin Kelly defines nature as the absence of control. The, the implicit part of that is that humans are the forces that exert control. At a certain point, I just had this like epiphany, I guess. I like people. I don't want to extinguish them. Like, I think all of a sudden it was like, people are everything. You know, I'm reading like David Deutsch. He's saying like, people are these things because he has a very abstracted world the way he thinks about things. You're talking about the physicist, the super string guy. Yeah. And like inventor of quantum computing and like lots of other stuff. Who, you know, defines a quote unquote person in some ways broader sense of these intelligent beings that can explain things. That's like a fundamentally unique like pattern of matter and probably possibly the entire universe. Super, super special. And I like feel really close. I just kind of shifted, I guess, to thinking that there's like literally trillions of planets out there and this one's cool, but there probably aren't any sentient beings like us. We're, we're the special thing. And I love humans. All the things I most dearly love are people. I think like I want to plan my next venture around something that negatively framed should be something that I'm not going to feel cynical about it later. That is a roundabout way, Joe, of getting to uh, let me help people <laughs> in what I do next. <laughs> a very intellectual argument for the, hey, I just want to help people and make their lives better. But I mean, you're kind of coming around to that. And I think for deep reasons, I, I don't think there's anything quite like human experience and intelligence in, um, well, we haven't found it, you know, maybe octopi or squids or something, alternative forms of intelligence. But like, we just haven't seen anything that's got that's in the ballpark. And surely it would be a sin to uh, extinguish humanity, right? I mean, and I guess that takes you to, okay, well, how do we live longer, live better, better actualize the potential? We've got a bunch of people floating around on the planet, but surely we can do something to help. I help me focus, since I love humans, it's a place to come to, starting from being like a very like introverted, like hyper nerd kid wow, like my utility function is around humans being happy and thriving. So I think so my analysis then was like, what are the differential effects that cause more or less human happiness? And, and like, I mean, I don't know, there's this Kahneman effect of the negative is massively over evaluated compared to the positive. So my mind immediately goes like, well, what's the inverse of that? And how do you get rid of it? And there's just so many kinds of human suffering. You know, there's like people bombing your city and germs in your drinking water and mosquitoes that kill your kids and um, hunger. And so like going down the list of these things and I like massively admire people like Gates Foundation or whatever going after things in a very utilitarian way like that. Okay, malaria, that's possibly the largest addressable form of human suffering. But I'm a nerd kid. What can I work on that can actually have an effect? A lot of these things are just like, you know, mosquito nets are like, there's just really cheap ways of dealing with them. And like a big category of them just come down to like development policy. They are largely at this point, social problems about politics and policy, which certainly deserves the application of our, of our best 
on that topic, although I wouldn't count myself, and it sounds like you might not be counting yourself among the, the sort of like global development tribe, right? Like, how can you contribute is the question you're wondering. As soon as I come down to something and I realize, okay, people are getting bombed here, like the solution is like, stop bombing them. Um, and then so many of them reduce down, 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 down to like, okay, politics is basically the solution. Um, and the need is for diplomats, basically. Okay. Okay. But Joe, all right. We've, we've motivated properly. We, we, we know you're going to work on longevity now. So we got to, let's start finding out. Let's start finding out. And, and, you know, there's a couple hops that take you to retro, right? I mean, I guess you did some biohacking. You started working in, in molecular biology around gene sequencing, maybe, or something along those lines. Talk to me a little bit about like the steps and, and through Viome as well. I mean, like Viome, I think I would have imagined another essential ingredient in accelerating development on all these themes, right? It seems to me that's your stepwise path to retro. So the first thing I did once I, I fully came to this conclusion that the technological thing I could address that reduces human suffering is ameliorate age-related diseases, is taking a look at what's going on there. And this was like 2012, looking around at the conversation in Silicon Valley, it was all about you know, various kind of nutraceuticals and snake oil kind of things. And like, wasn't evidence-driven, which is the, like the fundamental sort of guiding thing for me. First thing I did is create this nonprofit called Health Extension Foundation and just started getting these regular forums going. Like just invite a couple hundred people to a space, bring a professor and talk about science. Science, evidence, science, evidence, over and over again, over again. We've done like 27 of these so far. And just elevate the conversation. That was my goal. And I think it helped. A bunch of companies were formed out of it, actual hard tech, biotech companies. And my friend and one of the founders of Y Combinator, Trevor Blackwell, to give me space at the YC offices in Mountain View. So that's where we ran it for the first six months or so. It was at one of those events, like having professors come through. And at this point, it's starting to become clear to me, yeah, it's time to do another company. I'm itching. That's how you really scale things. And I noticed these professors coming through talking about the research they're doing in aging biology. And like it's common, uh, of course, in biology to use models, which are, you know, those specific organisms chosen at some level of complexity that are easy to work with in the lab that you can try things. Like a worm or a mouse or an animal. The word model sounds technical. Yeah, the canonical ones are yeast for single cells, worms, AC elegans, flies, like Drosophila, uh, fruit flies, fish, which have traditionally zebrafish in biology, but more recently there's a new fish species people used to study aging, killifish, and then mice and rats. The thing I noticed in these lectures from the academics was like, in my view, you discover these fundamental mechanisms, for instance, like Cynthia Kenyon, kind of start off this whole recent kind of unfolding of aging biology as a legit discipline in academia um, in the 90s with her discovery of DAF2 and worms, which is like you modify one gene and double the lifespan of an organism. What? Okay, that means lifespan must be something you can modulate. That means it's open season on being able to modulate lifespan in humans. And that's in worm. And so then you imagine this sort of step-by-step -step echelon of, okay, if it works in worms, does it work in flies? Okay, that means this must be some universal aspect to it. Okay, does, does it work in fish? Does it work in mice? Does it work in humans? Like a march, right? Step-by-step, -step, ultimately toward the goal. And the goal is to make human lives better. And so what I saw in these lectures was that they would start at some mechanism, say, go yeast to worm fly and then like okay that's cool this works they publish the paper in science or nature or cell and then they go back and find a new mechanism and like whoa, wait, wait wait why did you stop i see this road going to good and you're stopping the road and going back and starting over well because mice are a giant pain in the ass to work with my grad students hate it it burns them out they want to switch groups if i say you have to work in mice why are mice so hard to deal with oh they're expensive it's finicky and so i was talking to trevor about this like here's a blocker it feels like and he was like, that looks like a tech problem. Why don't you fix mice? You know, this sort of the delightful arrogance of Silicon Valley entrepreneurship of the, like, you look out into the world and see something that you happen to disagree with and you call it broken. And then your job is to go fix it. So I went around and asked a bunch of the people working with mice, what's broken to you? And the Trevor and I were imagining like, it's probably just expensive to like move all the cages around and change the bedding and keep them clean. And. The part that the grad students were doing, why not just automate that? And then surely it'll all work better. My mind is like a giant sort of vending machine for mouse cages. And I love building machines. So this is great. Then going around asking the people who actually run these facilities, that stuff's reasonably easy. But the hard thing is trying to collect data about the mice. Like, how are we doing? 
we change a gene, does it increase their health? We give them a drug that could theoretically improve the health of humans. Does it improve the health of these mice? And then how do you measure that? How are they feeling? What's their activity level? Is it disturbing their sleep? Like grad students don't want to just sit there in front of a mouse cage for four days of watching. Well, that one also feels very available as a problem to address with technology. I assume that it pulled you along that path, monitoring and video. Totally, totally. I think looking around at that juncture, like 2013, I was like, I want to do something in aging biology. What's out there? What could I do? There just didn't seem to be anything that translatable at that point. I want it like working in mice already. I don't want to like start a basic science. I mean, I love basic science and an alternate life. I just run like a basic science research institute or something. But yeah, I want to make stuff that works. The only thing that seemed like really tractable at that point was probably something in senescent cells, but there's already a bunch of activity on it. And it's like... On that, you mean some of the breakthroughs around like the Yamanaka factors and making old cells get younger and look like stem cells? At that point, yeah, Yamanaka had already done his thing, but it didn't seem like something you could translate. There weren't any good proofs of concept for, you know, alleviating age-related disease using iPSC reprogramming. Yet, the senescent cell phenomena, however, was kind of already kind of getting underway uh, from work, especially from Campisi at the Buck Institute. She was one of the speakers that came to my series, but, you know, there's a company Unity being founded out of that. And it just seemed like it was going to happen regardless. And it was still a big question mark. Is this going to be useful? And I had these few kind of harebrained ideas at the time of things to work on. One, I was really into immunology. So I thought, you know, you could probably modify the the outside domains of some of the receptors on T cells and get some logic going and do wacky things with this. It wasn't called like immuno-oncology at that point yet, or it wasn't really a known thing, but it just occurred to me that you should be able to do that. And I also was thinking about building some kind of filters that you could detect circulating tumor cells before they land somewhere else in some other tissue and causing their tumors, basically arresting metastasis. I talked over a few of these, including the mouse idea with my neighbor who's like, hey, let's start a company together. You're really smart. And he's like, oh, the mouse thing is very like, those other things are kind of sci-fi. The mouse thing was very doable. We should just do that thing. That's what we did. I mean, it also gives you a portfolio where you're building some kind of infrastructure that lots of people will use. And maybe you you support, you know, a variety of different strategies. Some of them might work, right? I mean, you don't have to bet on your wacky, like, nanoparticle that finds senescent cells or whatever. That's like a platform. I think of it as a type two play for vision. People who are like really into a vision, I divide it into like type one, type two, type three. And type one is like actually working on the thing. Type two is like kind of an enablement of various kinds. Type these are like the worst where you go off and you say, well, I'm going to make a boatload of money and then I use it to support type one things. I think people most usually either fail or they lose their way morally. But so I did a type two thing and, you know, like we did the first study and kind of helped BioAge get going. There's another, in my opinion, very exciting, extremely functional, incredible biotech in the aging space. And we did biggest experiment, certainly in mice to date for Calico. We had a pretty big collaboration with them. They're one of our largest customers. And so I just kind of, and generally make sure that it was living true to my original vision, kind of vision reason for wanting to do it. How big is a big experiment? Is it 10 mice, a hundred mice, a thousand? At least a couple hundred in as many cages. I think probably at the time that and we followed them all the way through their entire lifespan with high-def video of every single mouse. So it's probably the largest videoed animal experiment ever done at that point. I want to pause for a minute here and talk to you about Life Extension Ventures. It's the reason I'm doing this series for In the Know. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund dedicated to working towards the longevity of people and planet. The future of humanity depends on our planet surviving and its potential can really only be unlocked if we focus on some of the technologies some of the breakthrough science that's making it possible for us to live longer and better lives life extension ventures is a venture fund focused on supporting visionary founders that are working towards longevity of people and planet it's the future of humanity that they're working on and we want to back them i spent a lot of time as a science person as an academic, as a student. And then I spent even more time becoming a company builder and venture investor. And with Life Extension Ventures, I'm bringing both of those things together with my partner, Inyaki Beringer. It's got a similar story. And we're out there finding folks who want to build companies that can really make a difference for human life. We'll need this planet if we want to survive. 
And we'll need to focus on these breakthrough technologies if we really want to unlock human potential. So here we are doing it and sharing with you this episode is uh, some of the breakthrough science that we've been learning about and trying to back. Okay, so you're in the guts and you're at the inception because I guess, you know, these moments you're talking about with like, you know, where Unity was about to be created, where BioH gets going, Calico is now plowing their their initial remit into real science. I mean, it's a decade ago. And I guess you had this interesting vantage point. And I have to say you're unique of, of everyone I've spoken to on this series. You are the most straight up Silicon Valley hacker on this topic. Everyone else has come at it from I was in the lab, I was doing this, my PI was doing whatever, and I got really interested. And you're like, hmm, let me survey this landscape. Let me see what's pragmatic that I can approach here. Let me start a mouse company, see how that goes. And then it takes you to retro. The acquisition from recursion was shaping up. And I started thinking about, okay, what's my next gig going to be? And this time, I want it to be 100% aging biology. I want it to be a type 1 play instead of a type 2 play. And looking around, holy moly, it's gotten really hot out there. Like, there's just so much good stuff in terms of types of biology that seemed ready to translate that mm-hmm. the academics had been working on. Like, how far it had come in you know the seven years or so. Help me map it. So, as you were looking at it, because it's not so long, and it's kind of the world I'm looking at now too. I mean, one of the ways to break it down, I guess, is hallmarks of aging, or you know, what people think are the basic mechanism, or what do you think are the, the areas that have developed well, which have disappointed? Let's do a little map. I mean, Hallmarks of Aging is a great example. The beauty of that paper, I mean, there's people like to criticize it and like to idolize it. There's a lot of noise there, which I don't necessarily take the sides on. But the thing that delights me about it is that it looks at mechanisms. So it thinks about aging in terms of aging mechanisms, which I think is powerful. But especially, it says... Something deserves to be a hallmark of aging. If you can like and cause this mechanism to be increased in its intensity and aging gets worse and you can block this mechanism and aging gets better as measured by some objective metric of some kind biologically. And that like kind of delights that same part of me that was feeling dissatisfied earlier in the conversation around aging, which, which wasn't very evidence-based. So this is just like purely mechanistically evidence-based. and all of the items on there were things that you could modify and measure that related to age, age-related age diseases. Just that is a huge step forward. The other things that happened also in the meantime, while I was doing Viome, were NGS got really good and cheap, and single cell happened. NGS was already going okay, but the Moore's Law of, of that kept going exponentially. But then I think the biggest tool that emerged was single cell to be able to look at the gene expression profiles of cells on a single cell basis. There's this sort of march, as, as I see, like one of the fundamental stepping stones or, or uh, building blocks of biology have gone from, okay, there are genes, it's DNA, here's how DNA works, here's a gene, then to, okay, let's sequence an entire genome. And that finally happened around 2000-ish. And that's, okay, now we have the genome. We're done. Uh, we understand. We can figure out biology from here. And then it's like, oh, well, there's different genomes for different people. And it really, really matters. So now we have to, geez, not just sequence one person, but we have to sequence everybody. And then it turns out like the genome is modified and getting mutated. And like every time you have a tumor, it's a different genome. So now you have to do a lot more, a lot more sequencing. And then it's like, oh, well, your genome is reconfigured because of epigenetics differently in each different organ and tissue of your body. So it's not just your genome now. It's like the genome of each of the you know several dozen organs in your body, except that each of those organs is made up of half a dozen or multiple dozens of sub-tissue types um, and cell types, and each one of those has a different gene expression profile or epigenome. So like really, we have to sequence basically every cell. And maybe even multiple times over its life as it ages, right? So it's like a dynamic picture about how is it expressing and copying and that cell is aging, the copies of it are aging. That sweep you just gave, you mentioned NGS, which is just next generation sequencing. I mean, so we were getting really, really good at doing gene sequencing. And now we need to do it a lot. We apparently need to do it 
for virtually every single cell of your body multiple times in order to get a bunch of these snapshots and figure out what's going on. But it started to provide insight on which cells are old, which ones are misbehaving, which ones, you know, what protein or what kind of interaction or signaling got them to start expressing different proteins in different ways. These are the theories, right? I mean, the hallmarks is it's that stuff. It's like copied the gene wrong, the telomeres are too short, it's some kind of signaling malfunction, or some just objective thing about how old, how many generation copies it is, right? These are the gene related ones. Yeah, or the epigenome, which is the configuration information in a cell that helps it know whether it's a skin cell versus a liver cell is starting to get disorganized. They get configured during development. So they know, okay, you're a skin cell uh, of this particular subtype of skin cells go do your thing. And then over time, after copy, after copy, after copy, and all kinds of chemical noise and various uh, other kinds of insults, it starts to get kind of noisy and fuzzy and the tissues lose their clarity about who they are and what they're doing together. That's another form of it, just like entropy, basically, caused by various things. How do you measure that? Like there isn't really a super good single cell metric for being able to look at methylation, for instance, which is the, one of the, the primary epigenetic data storage loci um, is like various methylations and other modifications to cytosine on the genome. But gene expression is a reasonable proxy. And I think largely due to an operationally very efficient company, 10X Genomics, single cell gene expression got really practical. You know, like science leapt forward because someone developed a microscope hundreds of years ago, and you could just kind of start to quote unquote see things and that sort of Feynman sense. It's kind of like a microscope for tissues in a way. Suddenly you could just like, what's going on in there? Well, just break it down into single cells, do single cell analysis. Okay, here are all the different cell types. What's, here's what's happening with them. These ones are starting to starting to kind of lose a little bit of their, their identity. Because, because you could do an assay across a bunch of cells and be like, oh, you know, a typical 20-year-old, a typical 60-year-old, like their skin cells, there's this kind of stuff floating around in them. Oh, they're different in these ways. So there must be something that's causing this expression to change over time. Maybe that's like a hallmark of some kind of something going wrong. But then you got to figure out what, what might have caused it. So was there some kind of error in the copying of the code or is it getting expressed incorrectly or there's some other signaling that's messing up? I mean, in the fullness of time, like in the complete science, if you had all the information about every one of these cells, I guess you could figure that out. And you're describing the mechanistic tools that are making it more possible to get more data. And was that your thought? Like, let's just buy a bunch of these machines and just like take a million different slices of every, how are we going to figure it out? I hire brilliant people who come from academia and they are engaged in publishing papers on like using the most powerful tools they know how to, how to make the fastest progress. So I hire a bunch of these people and they're like, well, of course, like single cells, like it's like the tool now. 10 years ago, they'd be asking for an LCMS or a protein mass spec or something. Now it's like the first thing we have to buy is a 10X, you know, Chromium X. So maybe one of the analogies, I mean, to the narrative, the way you're structuring it is, you know, these NVIDIA chips, they're so amazing. Finally unlocked some power that there were certainly huge advances in the software level as well, but these chips made things possible. It allowed people five years to go ago to see what was going to happen with AI and start working on it with sincerity. And perhaps this is the curve that you have been thinking about. It's like, well, if you could just actually take every one of these measurements that you're describing, and we will be able to soon, and it'll be practical, we will find the insight. Yeah, you can see what's going on in biology, finally. Before, I think it was more like, well, there's something wrong with the liver. And so we're, you know, we're measuring some enzymes that it's making that seem to be correlated with disease. Yeah, AST has gone up in your blood. Well, let's poke at it and try a few different drugs and maybe we can get AST to go back down. Now you can do a single cell sequence and you can see what different genes are turning on and off in the cholangiocytes versus the stellate cells or the you know, specifically hepatocytes, et cetera, how the different cells are relating to each other. So this governing thought about seeing it's certainly a really powerful insight. And I mean, it's like a really opinionated way to, to say like, okay, we can see stuff. Now we're going to find it. Did you attach to that an ideological perspective about which maybe one of these hallmarks is the most likely to yield fruit? Or is the idea to just go investigate and figure out which thing it might be? So are you still, you know, enamored of the senescent cells? Or do you think the iPSC, what's your hunch about what you're going to find? Because I guess you're in a measurement taking phase, you're building an apparatus to go get a bunch of data, it seems like with retro. Is that, am I right? I mean, I have this giant remit, go after age-related disease, increase healthy human lifespan by 10 years, and a nice like pot of gold to start with. And I have to decide which things to go after. And the criteria are things like, can it actually have a big enough impact to help us hit our mission? Does it already have a proof of concept in mouse? That's like a huge gating function, especially for a lot of extremely intellectually curious 
excited people who were like, oh my God, look what this thing that does in yeast. There's like a thousand papers like that to read a year. And so we could just filter all of that out. If only someone cared about the longevity of yeast. Yeah. I mean, there are probably people who just really, really care about yeast. Okay. But I'm with you. Mice. Yeah. And then 10 years. And then what else is on your checklist that helps you filter it down? Because now we're at you, with just those two, you've actually narrowed it quite a bit. Also, I want there to be a plausible way to intervene that could be ultimately cost reduced such that a large swath of humanity can benefit from it. Trying to like just make a therapeutic that can add 10 healthy years to Sam Altman's lifespan. It's a humanity project. Like I'm really into people. So if you have to spend two million a year doing it, it doesn't yeah. satisfy that itch. That filter doesn't seem quite so strong. It sounds very important, but I have not heard of anything that doesn't lend itself to some kind of cost curve. Every wacky thing I've heard about, even if it costs whatever many millions, like if it really worked, we'd find a way to to make it more accessible. And there's some things that just don't seem to get cheap. You know, if you want like a hip replacement, you would think you just start mass producing those titanium things and they just get cheaper and cheaper and you just like stop by a clinic and they just snap one in. It just, it doesn't, like the cost curve seems flat on that for a long time now. There's just a certain amount of overhead that's involved in like putting someone to sleep, cutting them open, sawing their bones apart. And like one example of this is in the, you know, one of the areas that we're working on stems from research in parabiosis, which is connecting together the circulatory systems of young mice and old mice or young organisms and old organisms. You know, just as kind of like a, a wacky experimental hack. I can't imagine a person who tried to do this, like it requires quite an imagination. but it's just shocking how much younger the old animal gets when you sew it to a younger animal. You know, it's a grisly experiment and we don't do them here, but it's been done enough times and studied pretty well. If you think about implementing that, it's just awkward. Maybe you just want a source of young blood. There's like a company around Comambrosia, I think, making on trying to sell young blood to older people, which I think is just creepy. It's just going to be expensive and dangerous. Well, the, the through line on that idea, though, the way that idea would just work, just to give you my sort of optimist's take, and I'll leave the hip replacement aside, but the young blood one is kind of trendy because there is some interesting data lately, and it's a little bit in the news for sensationalist kind of reasons. But the way it would work is you figure out what it is in young blood, and you find a way to distill that. You're not doing whole blood replacement. You're not doing like, you know, one-to-one. There's some kind of signaling something, and it may not be one magic molecule. It might be 500 different things, but like figure that out. And either you source it from near human sources, you know, other animals, or maybe from organoids and you're like synthesizing it biologically, or maybe you even figure out a way to make, you know, the pill. You just got to find out what's doing it. What is the, the functional agent in that? But that informs the research direction. It's not like, okay, we're going to create a young blood company. That's not what we're doing. I got most interested in it when I saw strong evidence that you didn't even need the young blood. You just need to like remove some bad things from the old blood, which is very likely one of the main effects that happens from sewing together this young and old animal is that toxic things in the old animal just get diluted by the young animal. It's like the difference between an old and a young mind is, you know, the optimism and energy of the young mind may just be fewer scars from other experiences, right? There's recent academic published data showing that just diluting the blood of old mice produces a bunch of the same phenotypes as the, the parabiosis. That's the point at which I, and also Sam, got excited about this. Oh, this is much easier, much cleaner idea of like, like now I'm starting to be able to more succinctly imagine how, how, to, how to implement this. And even still, this idea that, well, you know, there are these machines that'll dilute your plasma, that'll like separate the cells from the liquid part of the blood, and then you can toss that liquid part and replace it with salt water, basically. But, you know, that's a risky $5,000 procedure doesn't satisfy the criterion. So the work here is in figuring out, because obviously it's not everything, which things that are being removed actually cause this effect. So it sounds like young blood is kind of intriguing to you. Anything else on your radar? What else are you intrigued by? Like the two other big projects here are autophagy, um, which is often talked about in like health and fasting circles and so on. But you know, cleaning out old gunk from cells, put very simply, and then partial reprogramming. Are either of those of interest? Yeah, well, let's explore them a little. So autophagy is like the worst named thing, especially even if you translate it to like normal English, like self-consumption or whatever. But I guess, you know, you starve yourself, you're fast, and your body goes hunting, and it starts by eating like broken stuff, viruses or things that might be bad. That's the theory, right? And stimulating autophagy, if you can, maybe through fasting, 
is, is sort of a trendy idea. Seems like there's some interesting evidence about it. I don't know that it translates directly to longevity, but maybe making like flus shorter. I mean, there's some sort of clues that the stuff might work. Where are you coming from on that one? There are a ton of age-related phenomena linked to the, the reduction in autophagy. I, I also like things that are sort of intellectually appealing, like why you could imagine that we're stuck in this boat. And it, like for autophagy, it's from an evolutionary perspective, it's just expensive to do energetically. Most humans a million years ago starved to death or, you know, they didn't quite get enough food to get it to be able to reproduce. So you're not going to spend a bunch of extra energy cleaning out your cells when all you need to do is like have that first set of kids. Well, but you do it when you need to because you want to get that cellular material. That's right. When um, under certain stress certain situations, like you can't find protein anywhere in your environment, you go into it like an intense fast, then you have to start recycling. Which is an often, often overlooked aspect on fasting, especially longer duration fasting. I think people associate intermittent fasting and fasting with caloric restriction, which I think is probably the highest overlap consensus area in the whole field. If you could dramatically reduce your calorie intake, I think people think good things happen, but one of those good things might be not the metabolic stuff, but it might be this, like you may do a lot of autophagy. One of the huge branches and a bunch of different mechanisms fall under this in aging biology as a field, this phenomenon where the organism has to live long enough to reproduce. This happens at all scales of biological complexity. And sometimes times aren't great. There's, it's just not good this year to reproduce or the, it's just things aren't good right now. And that could be, it's you know, too hot, it's too cold, there isn't enough food. And then you have to stretch things out a little longer. So that, then, you know, plants do this, all kinds of things do this, where they'll just kind of stop and wait for it to get better. And so this like this stretch out phenomenon, you can see it at, at a, a lot of different levels of complexity in biology. The hibernation, I mean, big animals. Some people study hibernators specifically for that reason, because they have a mechanism for drawing things out. But the, yeah, that's... You're interested in that one. But the question is, how do you like trigger it, accelerate it, target it at the right stuff? We can talk about it as this one very hard to pronounce and hard to spell word, but it's actually dozens of different phenomena happening at different subcellular mechanisms. There's proteasomes, there's phagosomes, autophagosomes. So, you know, I just want to warn against massively oversimplifying it. You can't just upregulate it because there's homeostasis going on where it's carefully regulated. You don't want too much or it's eating up too many of the proteins that are useful. You don't want too little because then they'll build up. And it depends on what kind of proteins they are, whether they're aggregates or misfolded proteins or ones that have been damaged by like reactive oxygen species in the cell, whatever. So I think what we have going on is a one particular aspect of autophagy. We've found a target that upregulates it in what appears to be a very non-toxic way. And it's a very, you know, autophagy is a potent, absolutely critical carefully aligned aspect of cellular biology you can't just come along and hammer it in certain ways because just bad things happen and cells die we seem to have found a spot to intervene that looks shockingly safe and definitely causes certain cellular build-up components to be broken down and recycled initially we're going after a kind of smaller disease with higher unmet medical need which we're not we're not revealing the name of just yet but the same mechanism should apply to much bigger diseases, potentially even some neurodegeneration diseases. That's like the big prize for us. That is um, tantalizing. How about we spend a couple minutes on partial reprogramming, which I guess was the third area that you were finding intriguing. And I guess that one's give yourself a virus with an edit to your genes and make them behave different. Before Yamanaka, there's this idea, there's kind of like the, an arrow, the arrow of time um, in the organism of like, we develop, we start from an embryo and we like grow all of our cell types and they fully differentiate and then things start falling apart. And Yamanaka figured out that you can reprogram an adult cell backwards. Basically, you can reverse development for the first time, which is amazing and gave rise to you know, basically all of regenerative medicine and stem cell research and so on. One of the really cool things about the whole life cycle, say, of humans and all other animals is that when you make a new one, it starts off at zero age again. So like two 35-year-old people can get together and make a baby and the baby's age zero. And you can measure all of its cells and they're all age zero. And like Often underappreciated. I mean, it's the simplest version of life creating absolute reversal on aging. You can create a newborn. So the same thing happens at a single cell level. You can take like an adult age cell or reprogram it using Yamanaka factory reprogramming. It goes back to an induced pluripotent stem cell and it has molecular features pretty much across the board of having its age 
reduced. Obviously, if you reprogram all of your cells, they'll forget what their roles are, and you won't have skin and bones. Which I think was the scary, like, early experiments, right? It was like this magic potion, sprinkle it on, and then you melt, more or less. Or the mice, the mice melt. Blob of protoplasm, um, or you get these kinds of tumors called teratomas, where each one is just basically trying to grow a new mice, a new mouse, like right there. It's creepy, yeah. However, our advisor, Alex Ocampo, in 2016, published this landmark paper showing that these two phenomena of like losing a cell identity and losing characteristics of age can be decoupled to some, to some degree. So if you start partially reprogramming a cell and then stop and let it return back to its adult state, nonetheless, some aspects of its age are like wiped away. It's a brilliant, wacky experiment to try, and it's a huge hack. And it's fundamentally mucking with like the, just the deepest gears inside how a cell works and how life works. But when I saw that, my eyes popped out of my head, like, what? You can do that? And is that just a fluke? And then Sinclair's lab over at Harvard replicated it. And now, like, probably six other labs around the world have also replicated it in mice, which is, you know, obviously one of my... And that one is, I guess it's like using a few of the four Yamanaka factors at some lower concentration. I mean, it's roughly speaking that. Yamanaka selected his factors based on the very straightforward criterion of, I want to get back to induced pluripotency. I want to form a cell that can then replicate itself and also is able to be differentiated into each of the three major germ layers. And that's for a particular purpose. For partial reprogramming, it's not necessarily going to be the same factors. And so that's a matter of lots of research going on in the field. Because the goal isn't then to get all the way back to APSC, but it's to get to one of these intermediate states that then can return to the adult state and function as a healthy participant in a well-organized adult tissue um, and just be younger. So another way to put it, perhaps, is that Yamanaka stumbles on this stuff that tells the cell reverse. It's highly observable. It's like a, a shocking, amazing result. But the bigger thing to take from it is you can tell the cell what to do. And it may not be the stuff he used, it's some other stuff, figure out which direction, how far, and that's the work that's underway now. It's like, how do you send the message that gets you to the right state? The cell is apparently a very plastic thing. It can behave like a very young one or an old one or whatever. What was shown in mice is that if you just reprogram all their cells, some of them actually do turn into iPSCs and the mouse dies. We don't want to do that. I'm kind of excited to be working with a technology that is kind of too powerful. And the question more is like, how do we tame it? Compared to working with something that barely works, and you're like kind of hoping we can take the loop warm up to just enough to maybe have an effect on patients. So the first place to start are cells that can be taken out of the body, partially reprogrammed. The blood. Yeah. yeah. Then you can um, can check to make sure that you haven't created some dangerous cell type before you put it back in. And you can do you know a lot more intense things to it that are less specific than if you're putting a drug into a body you want to make sure that you know for instance if it's viruses one of the things that alex ocampo said when he was like here's why i decided to work with retro so many people were coming to me and saying we want to take yamanaka factors and put them into a virus and then give them to people you know it's the obvious path for how you partially reprogram people but you just kill them and like i was the one who seemed to express the most concern around uh, wait, but we have to figure out some way of making this incredibly safe. And that's the first place to start. What about skin? I mean, skin's interesting. There are a bunch of really difficult problems with skin. One is how do you access the cells in it? They're right on top. They're right on top, but they have this very durable, waterproof, incredible, wonderful layer on the outside that keeps us alive. And that is resistant to almost anything going through it. It's not like bark on a tree, though. I mean, stuff does get absorbed. Um, all those lotions and creams and UV rays and stuff gets through it. Small fatty things get through. Small or fatty. So if you have, you know, if you put some oil, it'll soak in. You know, DMSO, small molecules will soak through. But if you have most of the ways that people get Yamanaka factors to express or things like them in cells is by introducing genes that get translated and you can also introduce proteins. That works too. But proteins and genes are big and they don't go through skin. You know, maybe you could dose something systemically by a virus and you have your virus happen to be just incredibly perfectly targeted to just the skin cell type. It's going all throughout your body. It's this all throughout your body thing again, which is the dangerous part. And that's sort of more long range program of ours that we call our in vivo program. Otherwise to access the skin, pretty much like what other people are talking about are using arrays of, of needles. 
you know, where you have like say millions of needles and some sort of patch and it like punctures, which by the way is not bizarre. I mean, patches as a, you know, the transdermal delivery of, of drugs is, you know, pretty far along at this point. Yeah. But most of the transdermal patches are, you know, something like fentanyl, for instance, that's a small molecule and it'll soak through your skin. They're just now starting to be ones based on microneedles, but it kills a whole bunch of the cells. There's like a bunch of damage that happens. The closer together you put them, the more of all the cells it's going to kill, the farther apart you put them, the distance it can't diffuse to the cells it hasn't reached. And there's kind of an iron box there. Well, that sounds like an interesting problem someone ought to work on is viral skin stuff. Because if that could be figured out, it would give you a pretty safe playground. But apart from that, it sounds like you have a couple of other interesting media to play with. Can I ask you, so just to go all the way back to like super personal. So now it's been 10 or 15 years that you've been working on longevity. You've met a lot of the leading figures in the field, you know, top to bottom. You, early on, you mentioned Cynthia Kenyon, and here we are all the way into Alex Campo. And um, what's in your medicine cabinet? What's your diet? What's your... Uh, me personally? Yeah. I assume you get this question every time you talk to anybody and say you're working on longevity. They want to know, okay, well, what should I do? What should I take? And uh, you are not a doctor, nor will you make a prescription, but I am curious, what do you actually do? I was just recently participating in the Wall Street Journal's uh, Future of Everything Festival. And then afterward, they had some folks who like to do TikTok. They're like, hey, you want to do a TikTok video? I'm like, that's the kind of thing my daughter does. I don't know anything about it. And they're like, no, 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 it's fine. I give them a little interview and they turn it into this thing that apparently has like tens of thousands of views on it now. Basically, they're like, what, what do you do? There's basically one thing that works really well right now that is a fairly transformative anti-aging medicine. Exercise. <laughs> and they're like, oh, really? That's terrible. Boring. Sleep more, exercise more, eat less, and have more friends, right? Basic. And it's hard to pull off. I mean, like, when people say eat less, they mean eat a lot less. When they say exercise more, they mean exercise way more than your average person is doing. Not to the point of injury, but just like the average person's not even close. Sleep more, I think, is underappreciated, and it's kind of easy to do. And then, you know, have more friends. I don't know. It's probably a mixed bag. But And then and no bad habits, right? Okay, but those are pretty basic. So then you didn't go viral on TikTok because you said that. Yeah, I, I think it was just the, the shock value of, hey, there's something that works really well. Oh, that. I see. You had an antiviral video. Well, what's in your medicine cabinet? Do you take a multivitamin? Any nootropics like phosphatidylcholine? Nutrient? All those things in a multivitamin were discovered. What if you remove this thing from the diet? Does somebody get a disease? Okay, if you take vitamin C out of the diet, they get scurvy. Therefore, vitamin C is necessary. It doesn't necessarily mean that having more of those things does any good at all. And I eat a really varied diet. Eat vegetables, don't eat very much meat. NAD, resveratrol, metformin, rapamycin, peptides, testosterone, other hormone interventions, stem cell injections. I'm kind of rapamycin curious, I guess. But the experiences I hear from people is that it doesn't feel very good. I did hardcore caloric restriction for six years. And they were some of the worst six years of my life. Like it just... How'd you do it? How'd you get yourself to starve? There's two different basic strategies for doing caloric restriction. One is to count all your calories and reduce them to some value X, which I tried, but it just made me incredibly neurotic because then everything I picked up, I had to somehow figure out how to quantify and read the label or ask the people who made it, which is like awkward at dinner parties. And the other is to pick a weight and then eat less until you're at that weight. And then eat more if you're above that weight, a very rare occurrence. That one worked for me. So I just weighed myself every morning. I just did this sort of gentle slope, I just ate less. I avoided that thing that people do in diets of just trying to lose way too much weight too fast, supposedly bad for you. And then just got all the way down to this target weight that was like about 10% below my like leanest kind of lean 18 year old weight. If I went above a certain threshold at any given time weighing myself in the morning, then I just fast for 24 hours. And then I just, after a while, I just learned, you know, if I have this piece of cheesecake, I'm going to go over tomorrow morning, then I have to fast for 24 hours and that sucks. So I'm not going to do it. And I just got into like a pretty stable grind for like six years. It's neurotic, constantly thinking about food. So many survival circuits in your brain, like all levels, reptile brain, the mammal brain, the primate brain, like Every one of them has their own favorite ways of uh, getting you to get back on the wagon and start eating again. It's just unpleasant. So this bedrock of the completely obvious stuff, the good behaviors, you have tried to practice that. And it seems, I mean, we're on video right now while we're talking. It sounds like you're probably not a hell of a lot higher than whatever your target weight had been. But no interventions. For that, you're going to wait for one of these studies to come through. I mean, I'll do basic things like omega-3s and turmeric and ginger and 
a few basic things that are probably tweaks that, you know, both my parents started getting arthritis when they're in their thirties. So it's something that I am uh, constantly on the lookout for to keep, uh, make sure that sort of. Oh, okay. Well, so, I mean, see like meaningful quantities there, or you just like eat a lot of Indian food. I mean, turmeric, you could be taking like 10 grams a day in, in water and just like a shake. No, I definitely take turmeric supplement pills. The ones I just looked in some of the clinical trials that showed statistically significant results for people who had osteoarthritis and then just went and sourced the exact same supplement they used in the clinical trials of the same amounts. Again, highly evidence-driven. And then fish oil, I guess you were mentioning some fatty. Yeah, I just see so much data on on uh, fish oils being healthy. I apply kind of a risk-reward ratio thing, you know. If it's something really brand new and kind of weird and very few people take it and the evidence is shaky, like, eh, I'll just wait on that one. But if a millions of people already take it and there's a lot of good data, then sure, why not? Amazing. You're not the only one. Having spoken to so many folks working at the frontiers of this field, it's quite surprising. Folks are quite um, selective about which things they put in their body. I think it comes from just like working in the field and having quite a lot of data on both sides that gives you pause before believing the latest, greatest thing that came through. Yeah, for sure. Well, like lots of things just don't work. You do research, you try and experiment, you look at the data, you get a negative result. A lot of how people govern their lives and the choices they make are around things with a strong narrative truthiness. This sounds like it should work. It makes a lot of sense, therefore I'm going to do it. You know, being in research for a while after you've seen and tried things that seem like they should work and they don't, you're just like, a lot of things don't work. Totally. When can we stay tuned? When do you think you're going to hit some kind of milestone and tell the world what you found? You must have some kind of internal timeline. We threw it on the gauntlet late last year and said that we we're going to have an approved drug out before the end of the decade to like wide eyes from some people. That means you'll have something starting clinical like phase two in two years, working backwards. Different clinical arcs go at different speeds, depending on mostly recruitment, I find, just asking around uh, things that are quick to recruit for or that are not really long. If the changes in the disease only manifest over four years of taking the drug, that makes the trials really slow. One of our partial reprogramming programs it, where we are outside the body rejuvenating T-cells, the first application for that, even though the long-range application is rejuvenating people's T-cells for just their immune system, the short-range application is people with cancer. And you know, this is a relatively fast-moving disease, so you're going to know whether you're you're like making a big difference in a patient's life within, say, six months. So it's possible to move the steps forward more quickly, depending on how acute the disease is and how easy it is to recruit. If it's not kind of obvious or if there's a lot of other therapeutics that could possibly work for it and the, the disease isn't strongly impinging people's lives, then the rate at which they sign up for a clinical trial can be relatively slow too. So you can wait around for two years while people slowly sign up. So that's another part of the art. But yeah, so like half the people are, are groaning, what, we have to wait seven and a half years? It's an extremely fast timeline. The other half are like, wow, okay, you're aggressive. That's Our mission is kind of like that too, picking 10 years of healthy lifespan. The longevity anxious, kind of more techno optimist types are like, what? Only 10 years? Like, why are you aiming so low? And then the rest of the biopharma industry is like, what? Yeah, right. I mean, if you had a cancer drug that you believed could do 10 years, you'd be amazed, right? I mean, they, they declare victory with five years. It's incredibly ambitious. And it's been really a privilege to talk to you and hear about how you're thinking about this and how you came to it. Joe, thank you so much for spending an hour to share this ambitious agenda. Thanks for your interest. And I look forward to having, I have a feeling that our next conversation may, may be when we have something really exciting to share. So, but if you're in the Bay Area, feel free to stop by and check out our labs. It's really fun getting to know you more. Can't wait. Thanks, Joe.